0: Support for Under the Radar comes from Well With, All. Well With All believes that self-care is
1: community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Well With All's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Well With All.
0: Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered,
4: I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, local helpers give practical support to immigrants. New York has guaranteed affordable health care for all residents, regardless of immigration status. And Hawaii's Latino population is up 20%. It's Latinx news. Later in the show, no question Muslim women's basketball player Bill Keyes Abdul-Kadir would go pro. That is, until she ran up against a little-known rule by FIBA banning headgear on the court, including hijabs. A new documentary, Life Without Basketball, tells her story. But first, joining me from the WGBH studio, Marcella Garcia, editorial writer for the Boston Globe. Hello, Marcella. Hi, Callie. And joining me from the studios of KUCI in Irvine, California, Adriana Maestas, Southern California-based freelance writer covering Latino politics. Hello, Adriana.
3: Hello, Callie.
4: And I'm in the studios of NPR in New York City. So let's start off with uh, something that is going on this uh, weekend as we're having this conversation. Um, lots of Democratic latino congresspersons including a few others, are heading to Puerto Rico uh, to really put a stake in the ground about um, not forgetting that Puerto Rico's recovery has to be a priority. And there are now more numbers of folk in the new 116th Congress to really bring that attention back. It's really uh, the winter retreat of bold, the bold PAC, the PAC there. Um, So that's a political and fundraising arm uh, in Puerto Rico's capital. What do you guys think about that? Um, Marcella?
0: I think it's a good uh, move since a message of support and, you know, so many things are happening, so many new stories of outrage. You know, it's just so easy to forget about uh, how Puerto Rico is still struggling to rebuild and to just basically come back to, to life um, as you, as we all know. The tourism industry in Puerto Rico was basically its lifeblood, and so I, I think it sends a message again that we cannot forget about it. I'm doing my part. I'm going to Puerto Rico later this month, and I and honestly I can tell you that it actually did weigh on my mind that you know I I always we always go away during January for obvious reasons. In the winter here is just unbearable. We want to take a break, and we were thinking of going. We always go to a beach, and I and it it, it literally weighed on my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, to think that, you know, it would be nice to go to Puerto Rico to, to support and to, to do, I mean, it, it's, it, it's only a trip, but, but it, it goes a long way because, you, you know, you go over there, you, you spend money, and you, you're, you're doing your part. And I think this legislature is doing their part, too. I think it's, um, it sends a positive message that we all can do something about it.
4: Um, Adriana, the, as I said, the PAC is uh, organizing this. But while they're there, uh, a lot of folks are going to be meeting with uh, Puerto Rico Governor Ricardo Roseo and San Juan Mayor Carmen Yulín Cruz. I think those are two people that people remember from uh, the, the right after uh, Maria hit and all of the, the kind of consternation that was going on there and still continues. Um, that says... A lot, I think, uh, to the folks back here in Washington. Um, We are meeting with folks that are out front and we're going to continue to make this an issue.
3: I think it does. I think it's it's good to reset and put this back on the agenda and to remind people how devastated the island was. I also think that this is an opportunity for some of the legislators to raise the issue about the debt that the island Mm. is still in and they struggle to recover from. So not only do they have to um, contend with rebuilding infrastructure and that sort of thing, they have an immense debt. And hopefully some of them will raise, raise the issue of debt forgiveness or how to lower that or ease it to such a way that it's more manageable for the people. Adriana, is it a little bit,
4: um, do you think it'll be better now because there's more strength in the Congressional Hispanic Caucus to make that point about debt, re- debt relief?
3: I think so, and I think that I you would probably see somebody like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, who is Puerto Rican, raising that. Um, I I just see that she would be somebody who would probably take that on, given what she has already expressed as a progressive. Okay.
4: Um, Moving on, Marcella, you have an interesting piece uh, that you just did this past week about an informal network. uh, It seems to be getting a little bit more formalized as people understand uh, their various roles of local folks who are helping immigrants caught in this kind of nether world of um, trying to be able to access rights that are available to them, but swept up in a a legal system system. Um, that might just deport them before they get an opportunity.
0: Yeah, what, what was really interesting to me is this sort of tension between Boston being very prou- proud of calling itself a sanctuary city when, A, we all know that sanctuary city means a lot of things, and, B, that also um, leaves people ground to sort of hide behind the label without really having any meaningful um, impact in people's lives, in immigrants' lives. Right? It, it, you basically make it up. You know what what it means. But, but then in comes this network of people who really wanted to help. And and I should say that it's basically faith-based organizations, including synagogues, a lot of people in the Jewish community and and um, churches, who were typically the ones who would offer sanctuary in its original sort of form. You know when you when you open the doors of your church to an immigrant who is at risk of being deported, they were sort of realizing that we can only help so many people this way. You know, what if we just start, so basically that you started asking folks in the immigrant community and they, they, they were like, look, there's a lot of folks in detention that need Basically, you know, things like rides to court or they just need support. They, they need somewhere to stay because the other thing that's happening, Cali, and I think it's a phenomenon that's hard to quantify because ICE or, you know, the immigration, um, th- there's not a lot of data coming from the federal government, uh, but a lot of folks are being essentially sent from detention centers at the border to all places, you know, to everywhere in the country. And a lot of people end up here who who have no ties to Boston. And only Mm. because there's this overflow and overcrowding in immigration centers or detention centers across the border, they basically have to ship them out somewhere else in the country. Folks end up here, and then they have to either go to where their family members or loved ones or sponsors are or figure out what to do here in Boston. So they go out, and, and what do they do, right? So... Again, there's this network of people figuring out what people need and, and they're listening and they are having a really impact, a, a meaningful impact um, that I think is showing the way uh, of how, you know, another thing that they realize that people need legal representation. Uh, as you know, immigration court, is it's, it's not like criminal court. You don't get... You don't have access to to free legal counsel, and so there's a huge, huge need for that um, because when your case, when you have legal representation, your case has a larger uh, probability of moving along in the, you know, dreaded immigration system. So I thought it was a, again a, um, a nice way to show the limits of this, you know, quote unquote sanctuary movement, sanctuary cities, which is so misunderstood and so sort of
4: misappropriated. Adriana, California is called a sanctuary state, you know, by a lot mm-hmm. of uh, folks. So um, is this something it's it's this kind of practical on the ground help is happening in other cities, formalizing, as I said, a little bit. Um, is, do you see that happening in California that, you know, for a long time I do. your state's way ahead? You know,
3: so what we have here in California is um, we have a governor and. And a state legislature that's definitely more sympathetic to the immigrant population. And um, and they have declared that it's a sanctuary st- state. Um, but what that means, it is sort of up for debate because we still see federal agents. Um, you know, they still have a presence here in California. But what you what you do see is like in Los Angeles, they have an uh, an office of Immigrant Affairs, so where they try to integrate the immigrant community and plug them into resources. Here in California, immigrants can also have professional licenses
2: mm. and they
3: could work as independent contractors and and have their own business. I mean, there are a few um, undocumented lawyers in California who are practicing law. Mm. So you know we do have the the system in place to try to integrate them a little bit better, which is nice.
4: Um, it sounds like this is something that's probably gonna be I have to say when I read your piece, Marcella, it kind of reminded me of the Underground Railroad. I, mean, I totally, but except-
0: absolutely. <laughs> You're totally I, I I sort of got the same this, this the same scene, you know, I, I, I thought of the same thing because it's people who created basically an underground network uh, of of folks. You know, it's it's like a chain, you know, and so you know to adriana's point that no one really knows what sanctuary means my problem with sanctuary has always been that no one can offer really true sanctuary because like adriana says there's a reason why immigration federal immigration agents are showing up everywhere at courts at schools because they can they have the authority no one really can step in and fully protect someone as much as as well intentioned as you are um, federal agents, ICE, can come to your—you ha- know—granted there are constitutional rights involved, obviously, but for the most part, if they know who, if, if they know if you're an undocumented immigrant, they can show up in your house if they know where you live. I mean, and again, this this is the part that that is some hard sometimes hard for them to to realize or to identify where the, these people live. But if they show up in court, for the most part, they can do that. They can they can um, uh, detain anybody. So. again there are other ways of supporting people again you know if they're going to be in court Mm -hmm. show up for them send a message of support you know or or again connect them with a lawyer because that's far more meaningful and impactful than you know again like promising Mm -hmm. sanctuary um when in fact that's not that's not a true promise that anybody can make
4: and for those people who are, do not understand the reference to the Underground Railroad, um, uh, that was a, a loose network that was quite formal after a certain period of time uh, during the time of slavery, For uh, started by abolitionists and other folks of goodwill that would either hide enslaved people as they tried to escape to freedom— or sheltered them uh, from, you know, whomever was chasing them and um, really actually trying to kill them. So it was it was a very intense and they risked a lot in doing it. But it's, it formed along the lines of uh, with some churches as well. Yep. So there was mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a lot of uh, references, historical references uh, to the same way. So this is a little bit more transparent and out in front. Mm. Um, so. I'm really curious about uh, Hawaii um, as a place that has so many ethnicities. Everybody knows that. You go there, you can see it. But the Latino population there is grown by leaps and bounds. This is kind of amazing to me. I don't know why I it just it never occurred to me, but it's it's 80% up since the year 2000. Um, uh Adriana, it's closer to you, Hawaii. What do you think? <laughs> um,
3: I think this is a function of the economy and the hospitality industry, but I would also say that there has been, I guess, what you would call a Hispanic presence in Hawaii since really the 1800s. Um, I want to say that there was uh, a, there was a, Spani- a Spanish um, advisor to King Kamehameha the first. Um, hmm. So there's that. But also when Hawaii was really big into sugar production, there were quite a few Puerto Ricans who had relocated um, to Hawaii. And this ha- you know, happens to be probably about 100 years ago. And then um, I believe right now what you're seeing is it's a lot of Mexicans and Central Americans coming to Hawaii. And I think it just really has to do with the growth of the hospitality industry, the um, the jobs, you know, people are going there because of jobs, and um, and it's a nice climate and it's beautiful, and uh, so that isn't so surprising to me.
4: Well, I, I believe me if I could figure out how to make that happen, I would. Um I'm just interested um Marcella in the political implications for this. You know, people are running around to various other states trying to um as you know, awaken the sleeping giant IE Latino voters. And there appears to be a great cache of them now in Hawaii. So what do those uh, political implications mean there?
0: Well, again, I mean it's a, it's um it's sort of like um you know, an, an, an the The parties or or, or the um, you know the political establishment should take notice of this. I I would be surprised if they they would uh, ignore it. I I mean it sounds like it's obviously uh, recent growth, but I totally agree with Adriana that it's obviously driven by economic development and and jobs and you know Latinos go to where the jobs are. I mean pretty much everyone, but you know that that's really where or why you know they 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 would go there. I would be I mean, like Adriana says, I I wouldn't be surprised if it was mostly Mexican, Central American, just you know, with by the proximity with the with the West Coast. But no, I I take your point that political parties and and elected officials, I hope they're paying attention, and because you have they have they have to catch up to this, right?
4: Right, right. Uh, I mean, I I think they're still maybe you two uh, would might add to this. I think they're still surprised. Now I'm surprised about Hawaii, but you know Adriana has broken that down for me in a in a historical context. But people are surprised to find Latinos in other states on the on the main island. I mean, on the main. You know what I mean? People are still surprised that Latinos mm-hmm. are in North Carolina, for example. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's 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 interesting in that way that you know people folks are everywhere, and you got to get used to it. <laughs> right. Well, if you're just Hawaii... too <laughs> what'd you say? Go ahead.
3: Oh no just Hawaii is a little bit interesting because you have agriculture where you know you do have a large mm-hmm. Latino presence in agriculture then you have hospitality mm-hmm. and construction. so there's a lot of construction of hotels and and homes and and commercial buildings and that sort of thing those are those are the industries where we find a lot of our people working in right so and and sounds. I was
0: gonna I was gonna say reminds me too of um Alaska too because uh, i I know that there's um Again, driven by jobs and and this sort of like, you know, in, in in a in a place that's so cold and so remote, you know, Latinos or people in 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 you know in this industry, you know, they go. Latinos are willing to do mm-hmm. that type of job, and um, you know they go on the on the boats, you know, to do fishing, and it's typically grueling grueling and hard hard work. Um, so I, I wonder how that compares again with a place like Alaska um Interesting. where i yeah. know that you know latinos have moved there for for this reason for this type of
4: jobs hmm. Well, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me, Marcella Garcia and Adriana Maestas, we're discussing the latest in Latinx news. A couple of stories now about uh, undocumented immigrants. Uh, First, here's the mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, on Morning Joe, discussing his plan to make affordable health care available to all residents, regardless of immigration status.
0: We have now in New York City uh, something that we can build on. We have a a public option that we're ready to make much bigger, uh, that can reach the hundreds of thousands that are right now not in any kind of health insurance. We also have a way to provide direct health care to a lot of our neighbors who happen to be undocumented. They're still part of our community. They need health care. Their families need health care.
4: Now, on its face, this is, uh, you know, other communities have moved in this direction. Um, but I suppose because it's New York, Marcella, um, that is a lot of weight. Right. $100 million annually.
0: I mean, it, that, that obviously goes a long way. Yeah, look, here in Massachusetts, uh, from, from my, you know, the little research that I did and, and from what I know and understand, undocumented immigrants can tap a very limited part of um, mass health, which is our, you know... Or form of um, Medicaid, right? So, and mm. in, in only for emergency reasons. So, and this is a state, obviously, that has a high, one of the highest rates of of, um, of insurance, because we have we've had universal health care for a long time. You know, so famously called Romney Care, right? But, right. but no, I think it's it's amazing. Again, in a state like uh, in a city like New York, it's it's it really is a powerful policy move, uh, and I think obviously worth replicating and it's already happening in other places. I guess San Francisco is also thinking of doing something similar, which I think it's it's the right move.
4: Adriana?
3: I think this is just another example of local governments taking charge and filling a void where the federal government isn't. Mm. So, um, you know, health care for, for immigrants, whether they're documented or not, it come, also comes down to like a real public health issue that would impact citizens and legal residents. Um, especially if you think about anything that might include a communicable disease or something that's contagious um, that is going through the community. So I, I think it's a good move. Um, I, I'm i curious to see what the outcomes will be. And, you know, overall, if there will be uh, what kind of what the end result will be in terms of improving public health and, and mm-hmm. the markers, the indicators for that. Yeah, me so too. I, yeah. <laughs>
4: Um, now, on another story, we know that this uh, citizenship question on the census is is really is problematic in a, in a number of arenas, and that's uh, the, the the president's uh, administration officials have been back and forth um, with ev- other folks who've tried to push back on it. But uh, Adriana, California, with the largest number of foreign-born residents and non-citizens of any state, an undercount is really a very serious issue.
3: Absolutely, because this will impact um, congressional representation and also federal dollars that we receive. So I can see the political calculation in not wanting to count undocumented people, um, just because it would seem to empower a state like California. But um, you also have to think about the, the very real impact of if If the state lost representation and also losing federal dollars, if there was such a big undercount. So the state would really be tasked with caring for more people that really aren't that aren't counted and and that, you know, there's that haven't been quantified in a way that we could bring in those dollars that we need.
4: That's going to be, I mean, that's not over yet. That's still a battle ongoing. I just wanted to put that in a context for people to understand what it means for California, particularly. I want to move on to a story that I know you, too, Latino women, can respond to Uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and all the hateration. What is going on? People are on this woman and on this woman and on this woman, and it's kind of crazy to me. Let me just uh, play a cut in case people have not heard her voice. This is Congresswoman, now Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, on The Rachel Maddow Show, reacting to President Trump's national address on immigration.
0: We can't even get laptops in the hands of our district offices because the president has decided to hold the, the paychecks of everyday Americans hostage.
4: All right, I just just a little uh, sample of what she sounds like, but I just don't get it. Can do you all have some insight? <laughs> <laughs> you don't get the, uh, the why people's... they're on her like all yeah. the time. Me neither. I mean, there I... are many other people to be on. You know, I so. know.
0: I I don't know. <laughs> I, I find it fascinating. I think I think people just love to hate or or, or love to um, just. It reminds me a little bit. So we were talking last week about this. A colleague of mine and I. It reminds us a little bit about. You know, when um, former President Obama first sort of jumped into, you know, the public consciousness back in 0807, and how the, um, you know, the right and the far right and conservatives just went crazy about him. And it was just this visceral sort of hate dri- driving these attacks. And, of course, this all gets amplified because of social media. And, of course, it, it's it's even worse because she is a master and very adept at the art of social media and Twitter. And it's it's like this major, major, major troll that conservatives and far right-wingers cannot resist to hate on. And of course, it has to do with the fact that she's a woman. Of course, it has to do with the fact that she's young. And of course, it has to do with the fact that she's a woman of color. So, and then, obviously, the way that she won. People mm, love mm. to, I mean, it's it's an amazing story. I I saw last week her, which I'm sure you all um, remember when she appeared on 60 Minutes, I thought she did amazing. And all I could see online is all these criticisms and, uh, you know, how she, you know, there was this sort of question about her being 100% factual all the time. I mean, everyone makes mistakes, and I, I thought she was un, unfairly, criticized for everything. So mm. it, it it is fascinating. It's 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 kind of it gives me a little bit of glee to know that she's going to be out there trolling these people and, and making them angry. Um, but it's um it, it's it's really quite a phenomenon to me. I can't explain it. Sorry.
4: <laughs> um, I, Adriana, I thought maybe you could weigh in on it maybe.
3: <laughs> well I think uh, personally I think she's adorable. I think I think she's yeah. She's articulate. She is cute. I i talk to my friends and you know, and some of us, I mean, we're not that much older than her, but you know, we all kind of see little bits and pieces of ourselves in her, whether totally. it's you know, her Absolutely. style. And, yes. Yeah. How quick she is, how witty and how funny. And, you know, you can you can see even when she hesitates on things, you know, she's thinking and she's learning. So um, I, I think she's great. I think she's a breath of fresh air. I do think that um, when she responds, she she might not need to respond to everything like she does right now. So I'm curious to see if she will develop a little bit more of a filter. And, you know, as she gets more busy and more into her work as a legislator, I mean, really, will she have time to address mm. everybody that slights I would her hope so that way? she doesn't. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um. I kind of wonder about her growth there. But you know, she she's young and she's learning, and she's very refreshing. And obviously, she's yeah. she's. And she's I, I just want to oh, be clear
4: that uh, that to to anybody listening that this is not to say that she should not be criticized. Absolutely, people should criticize her. I'm talking about what appears to me to be an extra layer of something beyond just outsize. the kind yes. of normal. Yes, mm-hmm. outsized. That's the word. Totally, one and completely
0: get. out right. of yeah. propor- proportion. And I think uh, I think she's going to learn. She's she's proven to be a quick study obviously and uh, yeah she's young she lacks experience blah 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 but like adriana says as as soon as she gets really really busy with the job i hope and i'm sure she's going to have a small learning curve and she is going to realize that you know maybe i need to be focusing more on this than being on twitter or whatever so i again i i have i i'm sure she'll she'll learn fast
4: well, I want to I like to end on positive notes. Latin albums are now more popular than country albums in the U.S. This is from a new report from a data company, Buzz Angle, that the consumption of Latin music has continued to blossom last year. Um, before you guys weigh in on that, here is Becky G and Natty Natasha's song, Sin Piyama, which currently has over one billion views on YouTube. What do you all think about that? Okay,
0: it's in pyjama. Okay,
3: all right. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> okay. I know
0: you did. But you know what? I mean, what I find fascinating is that every couple of years we see this type of stories that oh my god, Latin music is the best again or it's <laughs> I feel like we go through these waves and I think it's just another um Latin music has always be, has has always enjoyed so much soft power. Latinos have so much soft power through their music here. You know, whether it is Gloria Estefan or Ricky Martin, you know, leaving La Vida Loca years ago. Remember how that took the world by storm. And and now it's Becky G. Now it's J Balvin, you know, who's like insanely popular here in, in, in North America. So, you know, I feel like it's the oldest, it's it's getting a little old to, to sort of um, you know, so it was like last last year. Remember Despacito with, yes. with um, Luis um, Justin Fonsi Timberlake and jumping in on it, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Remember
4: so not Justin Timberlake, yeah. So,
0: it's, yeah. so yeah, so it's kind of like uh, again uh, another example of the soft power that Latinos have here. We we sort of dominate all these corners of pop culture, and we never quite, you know keep translating that into into real sort of like hard power, um, but that's another story I guess yes. for another day
3: Okay, Marcel's a little grumpy about it Adriana, how do you no, feel? Oh,
0: I love it <laughs> I, I,
3: I think you have to look at who probably is buying the music and you know, consuming it in such a way that is driving the sales and that's the youth, so as Latinos mm-hmm. make up a larger percentage of the youth I'm not at all surprised that that's happening Exactly,
4: yeah All right, well, a positive note to leave on, and I uh, appreciate both of your insight and and perspective. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Marcella Garcia is an editorial writer at the Boston Globe, and Adriana Maestas is a freelance writer based in Southern California. Coming up. Earlier this month, Minnesota Representative Ilhan Omar became the first woman to wear a hijab in Congress, thanks to a change to a 181-year-old rule barring religious headwear on the congressional floor. But the floor of Congress isn't the only place that regulation has been dropped. For four years, Muslim women's basketball player Bilkis Abdul Qadir fought an obscure rule by FIBA banning the wearing of hijabs on the basketball court. Her struggle is documented in the new film, Life Without Basketball. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. It was a New England blizzard in the winter of 1891 which birthed the game of basketball in Springfield, Massachusetts. Springfield College physical instructor James Naismith was desperate to keep his male students occupied indoors. In an inspired move, he nailed two peach baskets to the walls of the gymnasium and handed the students a soccer ball, creating the game of basketball. Just shy of a century later, Springfield also became the birthplace of Muslim women's basketball player bilkis Abdul Qadir. During her unstoppable high school and collegiate basketball career, Bilkis broke records and shattered boundaries with her head covered in a hijab. She was on her way to an international professional basketball career until she was stopped by a little-known rule by FIBA, the International Basketball Federation. The rule banned headgear on the court, including hijabs. A new documentary, Life Without Basketball, chronicling Bill Key's fight against FIBA's ban on hijabs, premiered late last year and is now making the rounds in the festival circuit. Joining me in the studio to talk about Life Without Basketball, Tim O'Donnell, the co-producer and co-director of Life Without Basketball. Tim is an Emmy-nominated documentary filmmaker and the founder of Boston-based production company Pixella Pictura. Welcome, Tim. Thanks so much for having us on. We appreciate it. Oh, I'm so glad to have you. And joining me from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation studios in London, Ontario, is Bill Keys Abdul Qadir, basketball player, motivational speaker, and the subject of life without basketball. Bill Keys holds the Massachusetts all time scoring record for women's high school basketball and was the first Muslim woman to play NCAA collegiate basketball. Hello, Bill Keys. Hey, thanks for that introduction. It was awesome. Oh, great. Well, it's, uh, listen, you're awesome. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm so inspired by the documentary, which, by the way, is fabulous. Um, it's just so heartfelt, and it really draws you in your story, Bill Keys, right from the beginning. And Tim has done an outstanding job um, in putting that all together. But let me start with you, Tim, to ask, how did you learn of Bill Keys' story and a little bit of how long it's taken you to put the documentary together?
2: Yeah, it's been a, a four-year journey, mm-hmm. uh, and it didn't, it didn't start out that way. It wasn't thought that we would uh, we would even make a feature. You know, mm-hmm. it was me and John Mercer, the co-producer and co-director, um, learned about Bill Keese's story, and we thought we would make a you know, five-minute short film that would submit to festivals as a short and maybe go on the web and maybe film for a couple months, and, you know, the story is so important and so big that, uh, four years went by <laughs> and we ended up working on this film. Um, I'm actually, a former high school art teacher and wrestling coach. And, uh, I was lucky enough to coach and teach out in Springfield, Massachusetts. And actually when I was, uh, out there coaching and teaching, Bill Keese was still in high school. So, mm-hmm. uh, everyone knew about Bill Keese's story. It was national news. You know, she was averaging 40 something points a game in high school. And, um, so I, you know, left teaching uh, a little over seven years ago and luckily just kind of kept in touch with Springfield and, um, and one of my former art students is teammates with Bill Keith. So, uh, you know, you hear about something like this and it's insane that she couldn't go on to play pro mm-hmm. where she had four years of, uh, you know, an amazing career at the NCAAs. She was covering um, and then there's this unknown rule. So a fabulous story for you. Yeah. And, yeah. Just, and, and just as a, as a coach mm-hmm. uh, and, and sport being so important to me, it was really hard to imagine somebody. I mean, she was she was set to, to play pro somewhere. Right. right. Yeah. And to take that from you as your identity um, is a big problem. Uh, for, for us. So.
4: Well, let's hold it right there because I want to get over to Bill Keys herself. <laughs> so Bill Keys, I want people to understand. I mean, I've given some of your credentials, but goodness, the whole points thing is really huge. <sighs> One of the pieces of the documentary that I, I, that impressed upon me because I'm a terrible sports person, was you're holding up that banner with the points that both your brother and you had done over <laughs> a thousand points. Talk about that. Talk about your, your high school career and then we'll move on to college. So, high school was very interesting
1: uh I should say, because I went into school as an eighth grader coming from home school, so uh basketball was really my only avenue at that time to kind of fit in, and um I had to follow the footsteps of my brother who you mentioned um who was also on that banner and um really when i you know when I stepped on the court. My goal was to help my teammates win the game, you know, get us, get us wins. And uh, whatever it took for me to do, that's what I was going to do. And what it came out to be was me scoring 30-plus points um, throughout, my, throughout my four to five years of high school, actually five years um, of varsity basketball. So uh, it didn't come as easy as, it, as the points may show. Um I was getting Looks easy to me
4: from where I'm sitting. <laughs> go ahead <laughs> i was I was
1: getting double teamed and triple teamed. um There were actually some times where coaches were were kind of set out to hurt me. so mm-hmm. it kind of got personal in some games uh, but I didn't let any of that uh deter me from my ultimate goal, which was if I needed to score as many points for us to win, that's what I was gonna do.
4: So what did playing basketball mean to you? Like, give us a little, for, for those of us who will never be stepping on the court in that role, you know, what does that feel like, um, when you're, um, out there doing, um, and participating in a game that you love?
1: Honestly, uh, basketball at first started off as a hobby. Um, just like you mentioned, it was the birth, Springfield was the birthplace of basketball. So that was really the only sport my siblings and I knew. And then, uh, you know, after having a kind of serious conversation with my parents at around the age of twelve and me being the youngest of eight, um, they kinda of said, you know, they couldn't afford college. So that's when I turned basketball into a job, you know, to kind of take that financial burden off my parents so that, you know, I could get in get it get an education. And so it became just a grind for me. Like every day I wanted to be the best. So I challenged myself, you know, practice. Um, I used to sleep with a basketball. I always tell people that, like, that's how much I ended up investing in the game. And so wow. when I stepped on the court, that's when I could kind of have fun. So I didn't let anything else, any outside factors affect me, you know, and my ultimate goal was to get an athletic scholarship uh, to, to school so that my parents didn't have to worry about that bill.
4: So when you first started to play in high school, this was the first time you were wearing hijab at that point?
1: Yes. So my eighth grade year, I kind of blended in, looked like everybody else. And then my freshman year rolled around and I had to start wearing hijab. Uh, and that was a turning point for me um, socially. Uh, of course, physically, because it's, it's it's an extra piece of material while you're playing. And then, um, you know, mentally as well, uh, just to be different um, was, is hard as a ninth grader, as a 14-year-old.
4: Well, talk about what that means um, to you, um, because, you know, a lot of people will hear this story and they're just going to want to understand, well, why couldn't you just... Um, if you were worried about that or later on when it became more difficult can't you just take it off for the game and then put it back on nobody would think any differently of you other people won't but right. but explain why that 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 doesn't work for you or didn't so, work or doesn't work period yeah
1: yeah so um, there's a lot of misconceptions of Muslim women and uh, one of the biggest one is the hijab or also known as the Kimar and um, with that you know I always use the example of we all know Mother Mary, you know Jesus's mother um in every statue or picture you're gonna see her covered in a long gown with their hair covered and um so the fact that Muslim women um f- still follow that uh it was really the culture of the times back then, so what we do isn't anything new and it shouldn't be a surprise, but unfortunately, um you know people look past that I guess however um it's a symbol of faith. And, um, of course at the time being 14, you don't really understand the beauty of it until you're, you're kind of tested. And, um, I wore my hijab because I've seen my mother wear it, my aunts, my sisters, my female cousins who were all Muslim. And so I knew that at that point, that's what I should do. Um, although I didn't love it and it didn't mean as much as it does now, um, when basketball was taken away because of the hijab, Um, when I was questioning whether or not I should take it off, that's when I realized, you know, the beauty of modesty, the beauty of being different, and really the beauty of my faith. Um, And I didn't want to allow an organization or people's thoughts or feelings um, take me away from essentially my true self. So it was an inner battle that I had to fight. And um, I realized that there were girls who looked like me, who may face some challenges, whether it's In the athletic field or outside, and I didn't want them to think that they had to sacrifice um, their beliefs or, you know, their their love or identity for, for anyone else.
4: Uh, I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And my guests are um, basketball player Bilkis Abdul-Kadir, and we're discussing Tim O'Donnell's new film, Life Without Basketball. He's here with me as well. He's a documentary filmmaker, which follows Bilkis' fight against FIBA's ban on hijabs. Now, in high school, though you were feeling differently and working through your own thing, nobody said anything to you. It was not a problem. It was after you uh, went to college, and that didn't seem to be a problem either, after college, it became an issue.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. Talk about that. So, unfortunately, you know, uh, the name FIBA, which you mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. has international in the name. So you would think that this organization would be open to all backgrounds, um, all walks of life. And um, after a month into trying to find a pro a professional team to play on, we come across this rule, my agent and I. And, um, you know, this is when they mentioned that they wanted to keep the game of basketball religiously neutral. And, um, you know, it's never religiously neutral if you have athletes with tattoos of religious scriptures, biblical scriptures, or even, you know, tattoos of Jesus' face. Like, that's all the same. That's religious freedom. So, you know, I, we kind of responded saying that people should have to cover those up if you want to keep everything religiously neutral. And uh, FIBA knew that they didn't have a, really a leg to stand on. with Religiously. With, and yeah, right, anyway, religiously. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. when they took it to safety. Mm-hmm. And um, that's when they kind of got real technical and went into the rule books and all of that. And um, that's when we found out they had a rule against anything larger than an athletic headband. So they, when you take the safety, um, the safety path, it's, it's hard to fight against that.
4: Because that can be defined in so many ways. Tim, you know, when did you realize this story was bigger than basketball, bigger than Bill Keys and her fabulous abilities um, at basketball, and now something else?
2: Yeah, I think there's just a lot of layers to this uh, story and Bill Keys. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on one level, you have this amazing player who should be playing uh, who's being held back for, you know, Bill Keyes was just talking about it. Mm. You, you throw out something like safety, and it's it's really hard to fight against that. And, and on top of it, Bill Keyes was, you know, there's a couple other players that she teamed up with, and luckily the Human Rights Watch uh, got involved at some point. But at the beginning, I mean, it's just her, right, and her agent trying to figure this out. Um, I, I feel like, you know, the story, we knew it was a big story, me and John going into this, and uh, but... It was actually the family. For I know that that might not seem like a big thing uh, to you, but um, getting to know Bill Keese's family—that's uh, a big thread. That's a big part of who Bill Keese is. So right. it was—it made a lot of sense to include that in the the story. Well,
4: she's grounded in her faith through her family, yeah. so that yeah. makes sense. Yes, of and, course.
2: And mm-hmm. she—they're just an amazing family. Mm-hmm. They're an, an American family that we all need to know about. And they're, you know, finding out more about uh the muslim religion and culture um and getting to know this family that we love and you know i, I still you know what i think about bill keese um i'm in her living room at her family's house and we're watching old f- videos and i just feel like i'm a part of her family and, and that's, well, you know, that's let important. Just, you know? let, me just, let me just
4: add something to that. No, that's that was a beautiful part of the film. But so much poignancy is in this film because as she was struggling first by herself and then as others joined her campaign to fight against this little-known rule. By the way, the, you know, there's parts of this film where people are going, "I never heard of this rule. This is crazy." <laughs> right. um, the most, one of the most poignant scenes for me was scenes of you, Bill Keys, stacking up these Nike shoes, <laughs> just boxes <laughs> and boxes of them because you couldn't play, and I that just got me uh that here you're having to put your talent to the side um while some people far away from you are coming up with some archaic rule based on nothing but i believe the film makes clear bias um and so that was it's really quite an incredible thing but let me fast forward to say that your petition was successful that there were NCAA players, uh, professionals, named people who came to your assistance to say this should not be happening to force, from a public pressure standpoint, the change. And I want to give people a, a sense of the, of the uh, documentary because here's a clip from Life Without Basketball. And this is you, Bill Keyes, talking about your feelings after FIBA finally decides to overturn the headgear rule in May of 2017.
1: I'm happy about them finally making the decision to overturn the goal, like, it's been long overdue, you know. And um, just, it's kind of kind of surreal just to be a part of history, be a part of change, is cool. But then, you know, I have to kind of think about it in a personal manner. And uh, it's tough because I've grieved, you know, I've got over it, and now it's back in my face.
4: I thought that was really because you at that moment were sort of conflicted because, boy, I fought for it and fought for it, and then, okay, here we are. How, do I, how am I supposed to feel kind of thing? Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt you.
4: Through, through,
1: that, through those four years, honestly, even with the film, while I was filming Life Without Basketball, there were many times where I didn't even want Tim and John to, to film anymore because I felt like, "What is is this really that important? I was mm. starting to second guess my story. I was starting to second guess the work I was putting in because nothing was coming from it. And then over time you let it go. So when I, you know, when they the worst part about them approving or removing the rule, whatever they did, mm-hmm. um they approved what I had already worn. And so mm. that's what hurt the most because all they had to do was watch two minutes of my film from college and see that I was causing no disruption in the game. And so, you know, f- that's the part that stung the most is that it, it could only took a day for them to say, oh, okay, no problem. Like this isn't an issue. You know, um, I mean, it still gets me now, like thinking about it. I, I kind of get choked up just because it was really unfair. And I, and I still don't know why, even after meeting with FIBA representatives, I still don't know why. There was not an answer as to why they took so long.
4: I want to let people uh, hear a clip from that moment because your raw emotions after you flew to Geneva to meet with these people and you came out of that meeting that Tim was not allowed to film and this is, you know, really just you... Emoting in that moment about everything. This is a clip from Life Without Basketball after your meeting with FIBA in Geneva on November 29, 2017.
1: Now I know exactly why it took three years. I felt like there was a lot of personal feelings in that room as well, you know, with them. The immediate response was, well, why are we going backwards? And it was said with like, like he was upset, you know. No wonder why it took so long. These people didn't care. Okay, let's just remove it and forget about it. We did it. Let's just say we did it. That's what, that, that's what it was about. It wasn't about trying
4: to make the game grow. So from that low point uh, and in your anger and emotion in that moment, you changed the story, too, for yourself, because you realized, yeah, you know what? I, I guess my story is bigger than basketball, and I'm a role model. I mean, what you're doing now, teaching these young people... About the game, and what you went on to do in those years while you couldn't play, was really about changing the narrative, taking back your story,
1: exactly. And it's difficult, honestly, uh I, I have moved on. I have let go of playing, and that was something that I really just did within the last six to f- five to six months like i just mentally letting the game go was hard um and then i step into this role of what you said of being a role model like this isn't it's not easy because the fact that i'm uh, i go to work every day and i'm seeing these young girls who look at everything i do from the shoes i wear every day to how i shoot the ball or how i teach like they analyze everything so i can't slip up so sometimes i feel like this is more pressure than uh, trying to hit a game winning shot in a game um However, I'm embracing it, and I understand that, I believe I'm, I now understand that I'm doing more gratifying work than me playing in a game. And um, it took some time for me to wrap my head around that whole concept. And uh, I'm grateful, you know, for the change in um, my path. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm grateful, That's there's no buts. <laughs>
4: Um, my guest is Bill Keys Abdul Kadir, and we're talking about her life really being portrayed in Tim O'Donnell's new documentary film, Life Without Basketball. So you really have decided this is your path now, teaching young people, and you've walked away from the game. Talk to me about is that in at this moment final, or do you think you'll ever at another time in your space think about returning to that basketball floor? even for exhibition games or something special? So
1: I still play recreationally. Um, I, I haven't just let go of the game as if I don't even play anymore. The the part that was hard for me to let go of was the fact that I'm still physically able and that when I stepped on the court the, actually this past February against professional athletes, WNBA players included, and international professionals, I balled out. That means I I played really well. And so that's what kind of made me second guess my career. However, um, life moved on. You know, over those four years, I grew into a new person. And Tim and John can really uh, agree to that. They've seen me in so many different stages. And I'm I'm still growing. However, right now, I think my life needs to be a little bit more settled down. So I got married. Uh, just moved out of the country and the work like I said before the work that I'm doing I feel like it's more purposeful and maybe I've already done my work on the court and now is kind of take what I learned from the court and transition to what I can do off the court
2: and, well, I, and I'm sorry at, to interrupt I just no, wanted ahead, to say mm-hmm. Bill Keyes ain't gonna say it she's saying ball out She scored 38 points her first game back. That's right. You know, like that, uh, she still can play. That's what we
4: mean by baller. Right, right. right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I I at least know that. (laughs) Um, I wanted to uh, broaden this out just a little bit to pick up something that you said, because you really sacrificed those four years while you fought this battle, not just for yourself, but other people coming behind you. I wanted to get your take on, I don't know if you know, that there are two Muslim women who have been elected to the House of Representatives, they'll take their seats um, in January, January 3rd of uh, 2019. By the time this piece airs, uh, they will have been Mm -hmm. seated. And the first thing that one of them is doing, the one from Minnesota, Ilhan Omar, is to work to change a 181-year-old rule which says there can be no religious headgear on the floor. And that bill by the time this probably airs will have been changed or be on its way to change. I mean, that's an impact you've had. And she's joining you in this. How do you feel about that? Honestly, it's, it's, it's
1: amazing um, to see the growth, to see the, uh, the inclusion, really inclusion, um, because you wouldn't have seen this not too many years ago. So I, I'm grateful for what, um, Muslim women are doing because we have to break that wall down we have to break that barrier and um, it's hard to have these difficult conversations with people about just the fact that we're wearing a hijab like it's a piece of material you know really um but for 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 Muslim women to take that stance because people really think that culturally we're supposed to be housewives do the housework you're not supposed to step foot and that's people in the re- the faith and that's people outside of it. So to see these these barriers being broken down, um I'm 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 thankful. And you know, we just have to keep keep pushing because there's more areas that need to be um inclusive. And uh we just have to take it step by step, but it's amazing what's going on whether in the sports world in in politics. Um, really in, in in every space, and we should be included in every space.
4: Well, you made history. I'm glad that uh, Tim O'Donnell has documented you uh, in his film, as painful as this history was for you to live, but it's quite something, and I'm sure you've made the folks in Springfield quite proud. I hope so. So thank <laughs> you so much for joining me. Thank you for having <laughs> me. This is This is awesome. Thank you.
2: Thanks so much for having us. We appreciate it.
4: Tim O'Donnell is the co-producer and co-director of Life Without Basketball and the founder of Boston-based production company Pixella Pictura. And Keys Abdul-Kadir is a basketball player and the subject of Life Without Basketball. She is currently an athletic director at a grade school in London, Ontario, and works to inspire young Muslim girls to play basketball. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley. And like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineers are Doug Sugarts and Isaac Rodriguez from NPR New York. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.